welcome to Two Way Street. I'm Olivia Reingold in for Bill Nygut. What time is it? It's a simple question with a complicated answer. As our guest today will explain, the time depends on how and who measures it. George Mason University historian Michael O'Malley first joined us back in November 2017. He shared the history of something easily taken for granted, standardized time. We're re-airing that conversation and other favorites as part of Two-Way Street's birthday celebration. To kick off our fifth year, we're revisiting the shows that we can't let go. The conversations that challenged us, surprised us, and stuck with us all these years. This is one of them. Because today's conversation will reveal the surprising history behind a familiar household item you probably thought you knew pretty well, the clock. But there's more to it than you might have thought. For example, is time a creation of man or of nature? Plus, is it a measurable phenomenon based on the sun's movements or a social construct intended to organize society? O'Malley takes us back to a moment in American history when not only those big questions were up in the air, but the small ones were too. It's hard to believe, but as recently as the late 19th century, my 1.15 might be your 1 p.m. And we almost certainly use different measures of timekeeping to get there. You might have used a pocket watch while I might have used a sundial, which predictably led to conflict. We'll hear about the American effort to address that problem and develop standardized time. Plus how that process bolstered our transition from an agrarian nation to an industrial powerhouse. Who called the shots in designing our modern day clock? And what was life like before it? Our guest O'Malley started asking himself those questions as far back as high school, which is where he began our conversation, by taking us back to that moment when he began to look at the clock in a new way. It, that was really why, uh, why I got interested in the topic initially, because I remember sitting there in high school and thinking, well, I'm done with this, but I have to sit here, you know, and, or I'm never going to finish this, but I have to stop at this bell. And I remember thinking, why? You know, why, why, why is this clock imposing this standard on people who don't themselves meet it? And why am I being trained to meet this arbitrary standard of an hour or 45 minutes? I remember those questions were why I initially got interested in the subject. There are aspects of what you've written about uh, time that uh, border on the philosophical. I, I don't imagine you think of yourself as a philosopher, but you certainly <laughs> raise questions. Uh, so, for instance, how we went about through the centuries measuring time and how we evolved to a point where we now have standardized time. It's one of those things that we just sort of think, I think many of us, has always been there, right? <laughs> Right. That's, it seems like a given. Yeah. So you tell a great story in your book about the history of American time. But if we go back much, much further to ancient times, mm -hmm. civilizations were finding ways to keep track of time, weren't they? Tell us about that. Yes. And almost all civilizations uh, have some kind of astronomical sense of astronomical timekeeping, and they attach a lot of significance to the movements of the sun, the moon, and the planets, the stars. You know, there's Neolithic sites. I was just in Ireland. There are Neolithic sites that line up with the solstice. So there's always been an interest in virtually every society in tracking time through celestial signs. When you say there are Neolithic sites, 
That's kind of astonishing to me. And what do those sites look like? How do they keep track of the solstice? The one that I'm referring to is near Dublin. It's called Newgrange, and it's got a, um, a doorway that when the solstice, on the shortest day of the year, the sun shines right in that doorway. And you had to be, to build, and then it's a huge stone structure. It was built before the pyramids. It's really old. And to you had to be observing really closely to understand ex- how, exactly where, where the sun would be on that day. Once you'd established the solstice, what did that tell you about time moving forward in a given cycle? It's not really clear that it's forward. I mean, it's, it's often, it's common to refer to time as, as sort of a, a wheel. You know, in some, in some versions of, say, Native American societies, time isn't heading anywhere. It's not heading for, it doesn't have a beginning, it has a beginning point, it doesn't have an end. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily end. Uh, the Judeo-Christian tradition really strongly has what the, you know, a telos, it has a direction. You could say that it starts with God creating the earth, and then it has an end that's predicted, and it has signposts along the way. So different cultures emphasize different, they have a different sense of whether or not time is heading anywhere, whether or not it has a direction. Um, and therefore, whether it... Well, it's like, the, so you could look at the cycles and it could be rebirth. Okay, so are the dead really gone or are the spirits more present than they are for us, for whom the past is past and the dead are dead? But in other cultures, ancestors are more prevalent in daily life and there's a sense that we're in a cycle of birth and renewal. And of course, we have that too. The seasons come around again and our clock dials are round, but underlying it, it's like the clock is a wheel rolling along a road, right? It, it repeats, but it's heading somewhere. I love that image. Yeah. You do say something. Uh, you've written that ancient people thought about time in this way. It was in God's hands. God divided yes. light from dark. And of course, in the earliest years of civilization, time was based on those natural cycles of day and night, right? Right. And in the Western tradition, certainly time belongs to God. It's created by God. It's started by God. It says in Genesis that signs or lights are put in the sky for telling time, more or less. But you could also argue that in the Garden of Eden, there is no time. Right? Adam and Eve are not going to get any older. They're not going to die. Time doesn't exist yet. Or if it exists, it's not moving anywhere. Mm-hmm. And then when they mess up, time gets a direction. You know, now this is going to happen and I'm going to make a, a deal with you and there's going to be an end to it. Uh, Move us forward a little bit in history and tell us, uh, how did the Benedictines deal with time? How did they advance the notion of keeping track of time? That most historians who look at the history of clocks credit the Benedictine order with, if not actually inventing the mechanical clock, inventing the impulse to make one. Because they have this famous monastic order that's very rigorous and very demanding. You have to say different prayers at different hours of the night. And they're deliberately set up to be inconvenient. The point is you're making a sacrifice. You're, you know, you're doing a discipline that's uncomfortable and hard. It's a sign of piety. So you're going to wake up at 2 a.m. and then at 4 a.m. and somebody has to do that. And they have to figure out how to get a guy in a pre-modern world to be able to know that it's 2 a.m. And so they have different kinds of what we'd think of as uh, pre-clocks, you know, the candles that burn down or what were called water clock, clepsidras or clepsidras, they're where water drips out of a vessel and when it gets heavy enough at, at another end, it, it rings a bell, things like that. And they have their own inconveniences, and they're usually credited with being the forefathers of the mechanical clock. So let's make a point about that. Um, if, if ancient cultures used um, the sun and the moon uh, day and night, 
uh, to keep some track of time. That was right. all based on the natural world, clearly. Now, when right. the Benedictines come along, if they are going to measure time in terms of a candle burning down or yeah. some sort of other mechanical device, suddenly time is disconnected from the natural forces of nature. They've essentially right. established their own framework for what time right. is, haven't they? Yes, and, you can, and I think one of the key points, that's a good point, is that it's unnatural. What they're asking people to do in the monastery is unnatural. People don't want to wake up in the middle of the night, right? Especially on a cold, you know, frosty morning in France. They don't want to wake up. They want to stay asleep. It's unnatural. It's a form of time discipline that's very different from the time awareness that a farmer is going to have at the same in the same period. A farmer is going to be acutely aware of how much the daylight is increasing and when the cows are ready to be milked and when the plants, when things are ready to be harvested. He's going to have an acute sense of time based in the rhythms of nature. But the Benedictines are specifically violating the rhythms of nature. We're going to talk in a few minutes about how the 19th century in the United States, the middle of the 19th century and forward, really accelerated how we understood and measured time both. And I think both of those are important. But before we get to that, were there other cultures uh, that felt it was important to have some sort of standardized understanding of time? Or was that irrelevant because people lived in diverse communities that were separate from one another? Yeah, it's, it, the, the people are separate. But as soon as you have mechanical clocks, you have this problem of authority. So if you have a mechanical clock and you put it up in your monastery, it's waking up your monks. That's fine. The monastery is an enclosed unit. But if it if it goes in the town square and starts to signal the hours when the market begins or the hours for coming to church, then you've set up a new standard for time. And that's that's really interesting and kind of important. You've rearranged the structure of authority because now that church tower rings the bells and that tells everybody now is the time to come in or the market bell rings or even an alarm bell, you know, and then you know this it's now noon or it's now 10 o'clock. Whereas before, when did you go to market? Everybody sort of vaguely knew when it started. Or when did church start? Maybe they'd ring the bells, but it wasn't at a set time. So that all is really interesting uh, because, again, it, it, it these are things I never much thought about. And here's something I really never thought about as we move to the 19th century. Um, th- across the country... Before there was any notion of standardized time, individual communities set their own standard for what time it was at any point in the day or night, correct? Yes, not even in individual communities, but not just that, but people within individual towns. So in a town, you'd have multiple conflicting sources for what time it actually was. In, In American small towns, it would usually be a jeweler or a clockmaker who would be the guy who you would who would be sort of the most authoritative source of time, but then it might also be uh, the, the city hall or a church or a, a factory. If there was a foundry and they had bells that rang for starting hours, that might be the authority. And there are lots of instances where there's competing um, claims to what the actual time is because there is no single standard. So if that's the case, how can you conduct commerce across community lines within a in given community? What you're suggesting to me is that if I stroll down a, uh, a main street in a community in, say, 1845 in the United States, 
I could walk into the dry goods store and look up at whatever kind of time device they had, and it would be 3.15 in the afternoon. I could walk next door to buy a bottle of beer, and the saloon would say, no, in fact, it's uh, 10 to 3. Right, right. <laughs> right? Is there's, that how it works? Yeah, abso- absolutely. There's a case in Pennsylvania in the town of Pottsville where there's an election, and the uh, losing side claims that the winning side cheated by keeping the polls open too long. And so Pennsylvania sent an election inspector to try and resolve the question, and it was not possible to resolve it because everybody he interviewed was going by a different source of time. They'd say things like, well, I went by the hotel. You know, the hotel clock is good. But another guy would say, well, I went by the, the mill, but everybody knows the mill is set 15 minutes early to get the workers in ahead of time. Somebody else would say they went by a jewelry store. There was no way to actually know what time the polls closed. <laughs> All right, so let me get this straight. Yeah, if I want really to go true. to the if I want to go to the grocery store now uh, uh, to buy milk, uh, I can. Uh, oh, what time does that store open? And I can open my phone and I can very quickly see that. Oh, the store opens at seven a.m. If I'm living in 1840 in a community in the United States, I really can't tell. Obviously, I don't have the phone. But beyond that, right, I. What do they mean? I don't know what time the store opens because that that store may be operating at a completely different time than I am in my home. One of the things that everybody points out about timekeeping is that you have a you have an always increasing um, degree of precision. So sometimes you'll see very early clocks. They just have one hand. They just have an hour hand because nobody really cares about the difference between two and two thirty or two fifteen. Two is close enough. And then they get hour hands and minute hands, and then they get second hands. And of course, now we can count nanoseconds. And if you're in radio, you are very aware of that, right? You're very aware of very precise increments. Mm-hmm. In, in um, Philadelphia, into the 1850s, you'd look at uh, theater ads, and they'd say, tonight, you know, Booth in Hamlet. And they would not never give a starting time. They'd never give a starting time. Just be, tonight means... I don't know when, and then they start. They start when the manager looks out at the curtain and decides that no more people are coming. <laughs> there are enough people you know, in the house. Let's go right, open the show. They don't give a starting time. It's very interesting. And then after the Civil War, they, then starting times become normal. Okay, now back up just a step because you just said something really important: the Civil War. Now clearly. Yes. Um, we have a different notion of how armies function today than we did back then. Uh, there needs to be communication across division lines. There needs to be coordination of one unit's going to uh, come to a location at this uh, and meet the other one at this specific time. I, right. I, I'm assuming that during the Civil War, though, uh, armies and units within the armies operated in some ways independently, but they must have had to have some notion of a shared time to coordinate some activities, or no? Did it not matter? No. It, well, by then, by by the Civil War, you were starting to have regional standard times because railroads have became so. The key, the key in the technology of first is the um, telegraph, because you don't really care. It, it customarily, you know that your local store closes at a certain time, and so you know you're, you're you just wander down there and get the milk. You just know, but when you start doing, say, you're in Philadelphia and you start doing business with the New York Stock Exchange. The telegraph lets you know that they're 15 or 20 minutes apart, the two cities, and that starts to matter. And then you start to want to coordinate those those things. So people doing business by telegraph are suddenly made aware of differences that didn't matter before. You have to understand that early clocks in the U.S., clocks are pretty popular, and they're pretty common by the 1820s or 30s, but they're really inaccurate. So they'll lose five or 10 minutes a day. So if you ha- even if you have a clock, you're probably setting it to something else. You might be setting it to like a stick in the ground or a sundial, you know, a noon mark. So there's no 
demand for precision until you have telegraphic communication, which puts places that are you know separated east to west. It makes them aware that they're on a different time, uh, that they're on different times. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course it Did does. Did I say that right? Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. So as we got past the Civil War, um, mm. where there were... Oh, I want to say, look, can I say something? Sure. The Civil, the, people have often claimed that the Civil War led to a change in timekeeping because everybody had watches and they were more driven to coordinate their, their movements in time. And I haven't found that to be the case at all, actually. I tried to find that and I couldn't find it. And... I expect. I think they they were still doing what they always did. You know, when you hear the bugle, everybody charge. I, I, I they weren't. It wasn't quite yet synchronized watches and we'll charge at, you know, at dawn or at six. I I don't think they were doing that. It may be that I just didn't find it. We're going to take a break right now. When we return, we'll continue Bill Nygut's conversation with historian Michael O'Malley about the history of American time. We're re-airing this show as part of our celebration of Two-Way Street's fourth anniversary. If you're just joining us, I'm Olivia Reingold in for Bill Nygut. We're revisiting one of our favorite conversations from the past four years that Two-Way Street has been on the air. Our guest is historian Michael O'Malley, who in 1996 published a book about the history of American time. He joined Bill last November to discuss how America went from a place where most people probably kept different times to a highly regimented society full of watch-wearing citizens and time zones. We've reached a point in the development of time in the United States, uh, in our conversation, where we have at least found ways, uh, the country has found ways to establish regional standardized time. Um, Tell us about, uh, the Naval Observatory at a certain point came into play here. Yeah. And they had something called time balls. Talk about that. Yeah. Well, for the first thing, railroads and telegraphs are sort of contemporaneous. So wherever you have a railroad line, there's going to be a telegraph line too. And so the railroads and the telegraphs work together to establish these regional standard times. So all the railroads leaving from Philadelphia would be on Philadelphia time. And then at some point, they'd change to something else. But the time ball, in in especially after the Civil War, in all major American cities, there were these things, on, usually on the tallest building or on a prominent building in the harbor, at noon, they would hoist a giant globe made out of tin or copper, you know, a big ball, to the top of a mast, and then exactly at noon, they'd drop it. So they'd hoist it up just before, and at noon, they'd drop it. And you'd see people, you know, they would look out their window, lean out their window to look at the time ball with their watch, and then set their watch to the time ball when it dropped. And of course, the only remaining example of that is the silly one at New Year's Eve in Times Square. <laughs> I was just thinking that, exactly. Yeah, but they used to be everywhere, and they, they would hoist them up. And eventually, by the 1880s or 90s, they're synced by telegraph to the Naval Observatory in Washington, which is set up as the the sort of primary timekeeping authority. And so that Naval Observatory would transmit a telegraphic signal, and then the ball would drop at exactly noon. So at that point, when you get to the 1890s, we have established a standardized time for the entire country. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So, uh, and that became an important moment in in our history for a lot of reasons that I'd love to explore with you. Um, so, one of them is that more than anything else, there, there. Let me back up a step. 
there was a certain urgency as commerce expanded across uh, county lines, across state lines, as the railroads, as you say, yeah. uh, were uh, moving people and goods around the country. There was some urgency among many people to establish a national standardized time, I would imagine. There, yeah, it's, there's an international scientific community that's very interested in standardizing time. And one of the major drivers of that is uh, surveyors, map makers, and the weather. Because they want to be able to get uniform. They want to know that if you have a station in, say, Madison, Wisconsin, and it says, oh, it's 32 here at, at noon, and you need to know what they mean by noon. Because you're trying to make the, the, the line. You're trying to identify the front, right, as it moves east to west across the country. So the Weather Service is pushing really hard for some idea of uniform standard times. There have also been, like, map makers um, had wanted to establish a zero meridian for map making. And to do that, they needed clocks that would tell precise time as they went east to west. It's the same way a, a sailor would need a clock that told pre precise time to know the longitude, to know where he was on the earth. So there's a strong, there's an international scientific community in Canada, England, France, the United States that's pushing for some kind of standard time. And railroads in the meantime had worked out this system where they tended to run their own regional standards of time. So the Pennsylvania Railroad would leave Philadelphia on Philly time, and then when it got to Pittsburgh, it would change to Pittsburgh time. And then when it got to Cincinnati, it would change to Cincinnati time. And in Chicago, it would run on a different time. And they knew in practice when those time changes occurred. And it, they'd worked out a system that was effective for them. What they were really worried about was that there would be a federal enactment that would impose a uniform system of time zones that would inconvenience them mm -hmm. and disrupt their existing arrangements. But of course, that's precisely what had to happen at right. a certain point. And, and the railroads were... Am I were the railroads the leading? It, given what you just said, uh, the railroads though took some role in helping standardize time nationally. There, it's it's entirely the railroads. So railroad managers, and it's not the it's not the presidents, it's not the famous guys. It's the middle managers who do this. The guys who are standardizing things like the height of couplers and brake signals and and standardizing the mundane details of operation. They decide on November eighteenth, eighteen eighty three, that they're going to adopt this new for his own system. And they're going to stop their trains. It's a Sunday. They're going to stop their trains at noon and wait until they're synced up to the new time and then go again. And they, the key for them is that they were able to establish the borders between the zones at places where they were already changing time. So they got minimal disruption to their existing operations. And the key thing is there's no government action at all. There's no law passed. There's no regulation. There's no pronouncement about this being official. There's simply the railroads announcing, as of tomorrow, we're gonna, it's going to be 2 o'clock instead of 2.10. Um, there must have been enormous pushback in communities around the country to suddenly being forced into its standard time. There's less than you might expect. It's, it's the, typically where people objected, this is almost always true, where people objected is when they were far from the meridian line of the, of the um, time zone. So in D.C., Washington, D.C., the, the difference between noon by the sun and noon by standard time is very short. It's like two minutes. You aren't even going to notice. In New York, it's like five minutes, right? And in Bangor, Maine, it's like 25 or 30 minutes. So what people start to object when they start to see a really noticeable difference between what their senses tell them should be noon and what the clock is telling them. 
Yeah, I find that really interesting because um, just to bring it into contemporary terms, I grew up in Chicago. Chicago is really pretty close to the eastern edge of the central central time right. zone. The right. sun got came up early in Chicago, and I'm an early right. riser. I love that. I moved right. to Atlanta. Atlanta right. is close to the western edge of the right. eastern time zone. Right. And when it's 7.30 in the morning, if the sun isn't up, I really don't know where I right. am. Right. No, that's, <laughs> it's true that people, when people feel a, a strong dislocation from their sense of how it should be, or then they, they start to object. And they, you feel that really strongly. And I think that's one of the, where you see objections to standard time. You see them in Georgia, in Ohio, uh, parts of Michigan, in Maine, places that are at the borders between two zones. Because it's sort of like the same effect as daylight saving. You're suddenly shifting things. Yeah. And, yeah. It, and it disrupts your sense of, well, your work patterns, the work patterns of your life. And it's, I think one of the arguments I try to make in the book is that it was a, it was a new form of community that it put people in. So before Bangor, Maine and Savannah, the sun rose at different times, about an hour difference, right? So 6 a.m. in Savannah meant the sun was just coming up. 5 a.m. in Bangor meant the sun was just coming up. But now everybody's in Eastern, Eastern Standard Time. So regardless of what the sun is doing, you should all be getting up at the same time. You're in a new form of community, you know, where the clock is running your life, not natural cues, and natural cues become irrelevant. You talk about Georgia in uh, the book that you wrote because we had a dilemma about uh, standardized time here. Right, because Georgia, the state is bisected, and th there's many reasons why the whole state might want to be in sync with the, with the East Coast, right, with the stock market. There's many reasons why you'd want to be synchronized with that, but that really distorts your sense of local time. And then there's many reasons where you'd feel like, I'm a Georgian, I'm not a New Yorker, why, am I, why is New York running the show? There's many reasons you'd want to believe that. The state is split in half, and so city, individual cities have to decide what they're going to do. Are they going to go with this new standard time, or are they going to insist on local time? Mm -hmm. And Savannah, for a long time, insists on local time. And then the Georgia Supreme Court insists in 1889 that the sun is the real authority for time, not the railroads. <laughs> and what impact did that have on how we told time in Georgia after that decision? Well, that, that particular case is about um, the expiration of insurance contracts. So if the contract is due to expire at you know, midnight on such and such a day, what does that mean? You know, and so it doesn't mean midnight by the sun or by the, the stars or midnight by the clock. And there's a, certain, there's a strong element of resentment of the railroads here. You know, they're the big dog economically. They're kind of the glamour industry, and they're also deeply resented. So there's a strong feeling that why are the railroads bossing us around? Why are the railroads telling us what time it is? Time belongs to nature. That's why I wondered if there wasn't some uh, pretty significant pushback when the railroads decided on how we would tell time. But um, I, I want to uh, talk a little bit about something that you've explored a great deal in your book. The standardization of time had a significant impact on how managers and workers in an industrial age dealt with each other, didn't right. it? Right. It's a, there's, it's one of the big transitions in industrial societies, societies that are industrializing, is you've got to get people to break the habits of agricultural life, where you work in tune with what the seasons demand. So you're not going to work on a rainy day, or you're not going to do certain jobs when it's snowing. You're going to plant when it's time to plant, and you're going to harvest when it's time to harvest. And so your, your work patterns really vary through the year. You have a slack season and a busy season. But industrial work requires regular, unvarying, and consistent output. And getting people to accept that is really tough. 
it takes a lot of training to get people. People don't naturally do it. You know, undergraduates, they do the paper at the last minute, right? Of course they do. Uh, they don't do five minutes a day, right? Which I'd like them to do and then do a better paper. So that um, one of the things industrialization does is establish or set up a demand for regular and unvarying output. But early on, you can see this really clearly, especially before artificial light, factories had to vary their hours of operation to um, coincide with the available light. You're in a textile mill in Massachusetts, your workday has to be shorter in the winter because you don't have enough visible, you don't have enough light. And then it gets longer in the summer. And so almost all industries had seasonal hours They'd vary them to make sure that to, to adjust to the amount of available light. Well, but there's the next step. Then standardized time comes along, and so does Thomas Edison uh, yeah. with the invention of the light bulb, uh, right. so that d- day or night don't matter. And all of a sudden, workers are being held to a time schedule. You start at 7.30, you finish at 4.30, no matter what time of year it is. uh, That's the new reality. And that was a hard adjustment, as you point out. It took some training for uh, workers to understand that, and it led to some uh, fairly significant disputes between management and labor. Well, you begin to see for the first time, after after standard time is possible and telegraphic transmission of time signals or electrical transmission of time signals is possible, you begin to have what they call master and slave clocks. So the, the, the manager's office will have a master clock, and then all the stations in the plant will run on that time, and you'll be able to coordinate when anybody starts or finishes their task. So there's a kind of extension of managerial authority. That is, the, the clock is in a school, say, instead of the principal having to go from class to class and saying, stop teaching that and start teaching the next thing, the bell will ring and everybody knows now it's math, now it's science, now it's English. The, the manager's authority is transformed by that. And then the other key element that comes after standardization is the, the scientific management and uh, time and motion study, where you begin to say... Um, how long should it take a guy to operate this lathe? How long should it t- take him to make this part? He thinks it takes 45 minutes, but we think it takes 20 minutes, and we're going to make sure he does 20 minutes. And we're going to time him with a stopwatch, and we're going to synchronize his workstation with the other workstations in the plant. So it's a whole new regime of, you know, a certain amount of surveillance of workers and a demand that they, a demand that they synchronize their movements to an authority that's not their own. It's the clock somewhere else. Let's take another break. When we come back, more of our conversation with historian Michael O'Malley about the history of American time. Welcome back to Two Way Street. I'm Olivia Reingold, in for Bill Nygut. Let's get back to our conversation with George Mason University history professor Michael O'Malley, who joined Bill last November to talk about the history of American time. Bill and O'Malley spoke shortly before the daylight savings changeover was set to begin, and that's where they picked up their conversation on why we began adjusting our clocks in the first place. As we sit here and talk about standardized time, as we talk about the imposition of a uh, man-made, a person-made time as opposed to the natural uh, uh, rhythm of the day and night, yeah. time is an entirely 
let me say it a different way. The way in which we measure time is entirely artificial yeah. and layered over the natural rhythms of life. Right. The, the, the other thing that I was charting in that book was um, how the symbol gets more important, gets to be more powerful or more important than the thing it symbolizes. So originally, clocks are a symbol of nature. They're a symbol of something that belongs to God and exists in the natural world. But by the early 20th century, time is the clock. Right? And nature is much less important, right? It's, it's the symbol has become more powerful than the thing it symbolizes. And so we have a system of time that um, puts us at odds with the natural world. And where we feel that most strongly all the time, twice, well, twice a year, is the daylight saving changeover, where everybody feels it as slightly dislocating. It might be great, you might be thrilled, or you might be irritated, but we feel it as a dislocation. And it's an absurd exercise on the face of it. Why? Because we could simply do what they did in the past, change the hours of operation. So as of such and such a date, we'll say everybody will report at 6 a.m. instead of 5 a.m. or at 7 a.m. instead of 8 a.m. We could do that. But instead, we change the clocks and magically pretend that it's a different time than it is. And that indicates how artificial, um, how our sense of time has changed from time as a natural thing to time as purely the symbolic mechanical thing. Yeah, and and I was going to ask you about daylight savings time. Where do you stand? I mean, we've been debating daylight savings time almost (laughs) since the day that it was instituted. Okay, you're against it. Explain that. I think I think that it is a. um, Well, when it was first tried, it was it was invented. There were various proposals for it, but the first time it was tried in the United States was during World War One, and it was pitched as a movement to save fuel. The idea was that. Uh, or to grow gardens. It was supposed to be a patriotic war effort. Um, you'd go out and you'd grow vegetables or you'd use less artificial light. And it, it never made any sense. There's a congressman from Arkansas who gets up and he's looking at daylight saving and he says, I have a great idea to save fuel. We can just change the thermometers so they say 70 when it's 60 and we'll think we're warm when we're not, you know, and we'll save fuel that way. And it, that's exactly what daylight saving does. Um, if it, it seems to me you could easily just do what people did, change their hours of operation. On April 21st, you're going to go to school an hour earlier. Or on April 20, you know, or you'll get out you'll get out earlier. Mm-hmm. We could do that. But instead we do this odd thing of hypnotizing ourselves into thinking that it's 6 a.m. when it's actually 7. All right. Well, we're going to uh, mark uh, Michael O'Malley down as being as against. against daylight well, savings the, the, time. The other thing, there's always been a commercial interest that stands to benefit from daylight saving. So when I, when I did the book, there was a lobbyist in D.C. who's only, he had two things. One was the dollar coin and the other was more daylight saving. And he, he, it was the makers of uh, sporting goods, softball equipment, mosquito repellent, charcoal briquettes. These are all people who would make more money if there was more daylight. So they, were, they had a vested interest in extending the hours of daylight saving. And the people who disliked it. So it was first tried in 1919. Mm-hmm. It was tried for a year as a national measure. And there was strong, strong opposition to it. And it mostly it was, as you might expect, it was from people who were on the border of two zones. If you lived in Detroit, and Detroit was on Eastern time, you were already almost an hour away from the normal noon. And so if Detroit went on daylight saving, they were two hours off the normal noon. And that started to feel strange to people. The other group that really disliked it was people whose jobs required them to get up early, like miners or industrial workers, domestic workers, because during the summer they might wake up in light, but with daylight saving they always woke in darkness, 
all year round. And then when they when they wanted to go to sleep, people were up playing baseball or doing whatever. It made it harder for them to keep the routine of their day. Do you um, imagine that anything will ever come of this debate, or is it just going to go on and on because of economic interests? Yeah. It's, you know, it's famously why there's no drive-in movies. It's supposed to be why drive-in movie theaters disappear, because daylight saving makes it, they start too late for families coming with kids. Mm-hmm. But the... It is an interesting point. Um, on the one hand, who cares, right? You just get on with your day. But and but everybody hears the stories that there's more traffic accidents on that day, and people feel it as a kind of dislocation. I think it would be maybe more thoughtful to say, well, now we're changing. We're changing our hours of operation. Why are we doing that, kids? We're doing it because the sun is moving in this way, right? We're doing it because the natural world. It seems maybe this is a little idealistic, but I'd like to see a closer connection to the natural world that we would get by adjusting our hours of work rather than pretending that the, the, the clock is the authority. Ah. Um, well, then that takes us back to s- sort of the philosophical aspect of this. Uh, you talk about how the establishment of uh, standardized time had an impact on our thinking about leisure time as well, using the hours of leisure time. I think I'm correct that among other things you, you've written is that we the standardization of time made us have to think about the value of how we were using our hours and whether leisure time was a responsible way to use that time. Yeah, it's connected to to a larger transition um, with industrial life. You could argue that a farmer is never not a farmer. He's just a farmer not farming at the moment, right? He's, he's always a farmer. Whereas a, an office worker is going to have a period where he's an office worker and then he's something else afterwards. He's an entirely different identity. And standard time is part of a complex of changes that makes us think about time in different ways. The labor movement would all, had a great phrase they would always use, eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what we will. And they wanted to, they, their response to industrialization was to say, to, to demand that life be divided up that way. So you got eight hours for leisure, for what you will, right? And eight hours for sleep. In the book you wrote in 1990, uh, Keeping Watch, A History of American Time, you talked about, um, well, let me ask you the question. Why Why in your book, is it Edward, is it Muybridge? Is that how you pronounce it? Muybridge, yeah. Muybridge. Yeah. So you talked about a very famous photographic study. Uh, yeah. The question being, uh, does a horse uh, in a gallop actually have all four hoofs off the ground at yes, the same right, time? Right? right. And uh, Muybridge is the guy who established clearly through right. photography that he did. How did he right. do it? And why is that important in your book about time? Well, the standard time, on the one hand, standard time in a lot, for a lot of people is sort of trivial, right? It's not a big deal, in, as I said, in Philadelphia. It's just a matter of a few minutes. Um, but it's part of a complex of changes in thinking about time. It's part of a larger network of changes. And Moybridge was really interested in using the tools he had to figure out what was going on in motion. What is actually happening when something's moving? People didn't know that. And the famous question was horses. If you painted a horse galloping, as it went by, you looked at it, it looks like all four hoofs are off the ground. But Mm -hmm. if you painted that way, it looked ridiculous. Here's this, you know, one-ton animal floating in the air. It looked silly. So Moybridge set up a a track, supposedly at the behest of Leland Stanford, who had a prize um, horse, a racehorse he wanted to check out. He set up a bunch of cameras on a, like a 100-yard strip, and they would be triggered by the horse as it ran along. There was a wire, and they'd trip the camera. 
And so the result is you got a, sequ a sequence of movements that showed clearly that all four hoofs left the ground. And so that was really useful for people. But also Moybridge then, who's an odd, odd man, Moybridge, then went on to do uh, motion studies of people, jugglers, acrobats, gymnasts, people walking, breaking down the continuous time of somebody moving into little discrete instants that could then be studied and eventually in movies recombined. And what's interesting to me about that is that um, it helps us understand that time is about more than one thing. It, yeah. Time helps us understand where we are at a given moment as well as that the time in which we are in that moment, right? It does both of those things. Right. The thing that I that I focused on to try to get to that was early motion pictures. And if you, if you looked at the very earliest movies, silent movies, they're they're very different from modern movies. And one of the things they 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 typically will show one scene of action and they don't intercut. There's a famous movie called Life of an American Fireman where you see a woman in a room and there's a fire in the room and she faints onto the bed and then the camera doesn't move. Then firemen come in the window and they take her out the window and then they put out the fire. And then it switches to the outside of the house and you see the woman go to the window and wave for help and then faint back into the room and then the firemen put a ladder against the house and they go up. The point is that he didn't intercut the two sequences. He understood that the experience of the inside and the experience of the outside were separate and that was how you had to tell the story. And one of the things that... Um, happens with the invention of modern move, the modern movie form is that you can intercut between different scenes of action. So now you're in the room, now you're out of it. Now you're the fireman, now you're the woman. Now you're looking at the flames. You can change point of view and change scene in the same um, duration of time. I think it's fascinating. I, it's, it's what we're suggesting here is that uh, time on the clock doesn't change whether the shot is from the fireman's perspective right. rushing to the fire or from right. the woman who's trapped inside. Time itself is moving uh, simultaneous in both places simultaneously. Right. Uh, but location has changed, and therefore uh, we think about time as a place as well as— right. Yeah. Well, if you so if you're in Bangor, Maine, and the sun is rising, and you're in Georgia, and it's not, but it's six o'clock in the morning in both places, um, you're dislocated in space and time. Right. The meaning of space and time is different in a, in a subtle way. And in the movie I was describing, there's the the duration of events in the room and the duration of events outside, and they're separate, and they have a time span. It takes ten minutes for this to happen, and it takes ten minutes for that. But a modern movie compresses and accelerates time, so. Things that would take 10 minutes in real life take 30 seconds. That kind of, um, it's a very powerful form of art, the kind of radical dislocation. I often use the beginning of um, Saving Private Ryan in class because it's understood as highly realistic. because it's, it's vivid. It's really bloody. But it's not realistic at all if you think about it for a second because you're, it starts with you lying on a beach and then it ends with, then suddenly you're inside a landing craft and then you're 20 feet above a landing craft and then you're back inside and then you're down in the water watching people fall into the water. And then you're a German machine gunner shooting at the people you just were. So there's nothing realistic about that. Yeah, yeah. But it's, but it's, and it's, it's a great form of art. And it, what, it, re, what was required to get there is dislocating people in space and time and recombining them. So I think that one of the things that standard time does, or one of the things it's part of, is a kind of radical dislocation of people in time and space. Another great example of this is, is um, 
people, historians will often say refrigerated rail cars are really interesting because if you're living in New York in uh, February before refrigerated rail cars, you, the food you eat is entirely restricted by what's available locally. So you're eating dried food, preserved food, maybe canned food. But suddenly with refrigerated rail cars, you can get fresh food from all over the country. So literally, February doesn't mean what it used to. Space and time are different. Now, of course, we go to the grocery store and we've got produce from any season available all the time. So August doesn't mean what it used to. If you belong to a, uh, a CSA, one of those things where you, you get delivery from a farm, mm-hmm. the first thing that strikes you is, oh, wow, it's cabbage season. There's like nothing but cabbage for two weeks and I don't have a cabbage <laughs> recipe, right? So you're, you're suddenly, the meaning of space and time changes then, right? Because to be in Virginia, where I am, in August means suddenly local corn is really good, right? And then it's not good. Or suddenly there's strawberries, right? And then the strawberries are gone. But with refrigerated rail cars, there's always strawberries. Yeah. So literally, the, the space and time don't mean quite what they used to. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? It's good to have strawberries, but it is a kind of dislocation. You, you know, I look at my watch and I don't think much about it. It's now here, quarter to 12, as we're uh, recording this interview. It never occurred to me that when I look at the time on my watch, there is so much more. Uh, behind my being able able to even say it's quarter to twelve right. here in Atlanta <laughs> while we're talking, mm-hmm. you're you've given a, a me and I and I think our listeners will agree a lot to really think about. And I'm very grateful to you that you took the time to uh, talk with us on Two Way Street. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. While we're on the subject of time, every year. Producer Jenny Ahmed competes in an international 24-hour radio race hosted by public radio station KCRW. The teams who participate are given a theme and then have 24 hours from that moment to complete their stories. Two years ago, the theme was time change. Jenny and GPB's Ezra Morris got to work. They talked to members of the Los Angeles Ethiopian community, who come from a country where time is marked very differently than it is here. They interviewed men just released from L.A. County Jail, and they talked with bike racers who just happened to be competing in the USA Cycling National Championships that same weekend. And Ezra and Jenny asked one question. How does time factor into your life? Here's the audio piece they produced in 24 hours. Back home, it's 2007. Time, there's no clocks in the cells. There's nothing in there. So time is very slow. You don't know if it's daylight, if it's nighttime. I mean, it's it's nothing. September 11th would be our new year. Hold on one second. So in Ethiopia, it's February? I don't think so. Uh, uh, okay, uh, hold on. So when we say 12 noon, uh, in Ethiopia, we'd, we'd say that it's 6 o'clock. Back home right now, it's 2007. We're in front of Los Angeles County. Correctional Center, jailhouse. Well, you know, I, I was in there for a week. That doesn't really matter. What matters is that they put the time and they do the best that they can. Oh, there's a lot of talk, chit-chat talk all, all the time. Right now we're at the national championships. And I'm a, a track racer, a master tra- track racer. So I did, uh, what, maybe 10 days, 10, no more than 12 days total. Yet when you when you look at the time, it was, say, 
11.567 and someone else was 11.502 and that becomes the difference and it seems like a big difference most of the time particularly the dates and the months it's kind of messy so we have eight days difference too so eight or nine days sorry do we have eight days difference every hundredths of a second count when when you lose by two one hundredths you're thinking oh my god that's like just one little push that's like getting off the start line just not even you know just that much faster we're now 2015 right so i just subtract a pain that would make it like um 2005 right so so it's it's almost as if math makes us honest to the pinpoint accuracy, yet our senses would have a hard time telling the difference. You know, the difference is eight years anyway. If you subtract eight years from 2015, it's going to be 2007. So When they wake you up and say, you know, time to go, I mean, it's like you can't wait for this day. And it goes by real slow. And I came around and I looked at the board and I couldn't figure out if I had won or not because it looked like the time was exactly the same. Altogether, they gave me 120 days. 120 days. When I looked at the, the times, I, was, I won by two hundredths of a second. Once you get out, you're still uh, stuck in a particular spot. But life goes on and then you got to start all over again, like from zero. You got to... You, you got to take time to get back on track. It takes days. It doesn't take this hour. Uh, it takes days and days. Sometimes it takes a month or two months. And then you always have it in your, um, in your mind. So, like, whenever anything else comes on, I'm always, I, I remind myself if something is hard, it's like, you know what? You did that world championship. You can do anything. Keep going. <laughs> that, was, that was quite a moment. It's the time of the season. Love runs high in this time. Give it to me easy and let me try with pleasured hands to take you in the sun to promised lands to show you everyone. It's the time of the season for love. GPB's Jenny Amund and Ezra Morris produced. Back home, it's 2007 for KCRW's 24-hour radio race. By the way, it happens to currently be 2010 in Ethiopia. We're about out of time for today's show, but as always, I want to remind you that if you can't be near a radio when we're on the air, you can subscribe to the Two-Way Street podcast at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And all of our shows are archived on our website at gpb.org slash TWS. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Thanks for revisiting one of our favorite conversations with us. I'm Olivia Reingold, Two-Way Streets producer. Our engineer is Tyler Morris. Our host is Bill Nigat. We hope to see you again next week for another Two-Way Street. Who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? Is he rich like me?